I will tell a new collector, a young collector, think about what makes your heart sing, right? When you watch something on, on a screen. And let's make a list. Let's make a list of, you know, what you respond to. And then let's see which artists are doing work that has a reference to, to those things that give you goosebumps and take your breath away. And you begin there. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. In this episode, we're speaking with Manuel de Santarin. Based in Boston, Manuel's collection focuses on video art, photography, and performance and time-based works, with a particular focus on emerging artists. Manuel has been president of the Cisneros Fontanals Art Foundation in Miami since 2017. He also co-chairs the Guggenheim Museum's Photography Council and is on the advisory boards of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis University. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. Welcome, Manuel. Well, thank you, Sean. You're making me sound very important. You are very important. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here with you. We're very, very happy to have you here. Thank you. I know you as somebody who is deeply passionate about what they do, who is extremely diligent about looking and thinking and spending a lot of time considering your decision-making process. Um, but I want to take you right back to the beginning. Okay. Um, you started collecting photography, am I correct? Yes, it all came about a very roundabout way. I inherited some very lovely Spanish colonial paintings from my grandmother and uh, my, my house was starting to look like a chapel. And with very little guilt because she said, these are for you, you do what you want with them. I, I sold the collection and with the money that I got from that, I started collecting photography. Which what, what date was that? It's I'm going to say early early eighties, early eighties, before the Miami Art Basel craziness started. Well, that was the early two thousands. Right. Early eighties was very early to decide you were going to collect photography. Yes, but I I did my homework because first of all, you know, I I had limited funds to work with, and I wanted to be very smart about the things that I collected, that. I could augment and add and add on to. You know, even back then, photography was still not what it is right now. You know, it, it was somewhat being questioned. But I, I saw some really beautiful private collections that were put together, and they were thoughtful. They had a dialogue. The works would speak to each other, and that actually spoke to me. That that was. Um, my aha moment. And so I began collecting um, 
emerging artists, but along the way, you know, one or two, what are now considered gems, fell into my hands. And it kept growing and growing. And, and, the and at that point, were you collecting thinking about the collection in a holistic way, thinking about, I want to form a collection that is going to have some historical importance, or were you just collecting the things you loved and you intuitively responded to? I think it was a combination of the two. My instincts drove me to, to the human figure and some of these images that were ending up hanging on my walls were referencing um, documentation of performances. And I didn't do that intentionally, but all of a sudden I saw this thread and I said, okay, um, let's keep going. That's very early on yes. to have identified that thread. Yes. Were, were, those, were those photographs from video or were they documents as stand-ins for performances? How would you characterize they, them? They were documentation of actual performances. You know, no one was really interested. Tell me about it. The things that I was acquiring were quite reasonable. You I'm know? sure they were and, at that point. You know, <laughs> I think most uh, private collectors weren't looking at that. And that, that was also, without really trying, I think that that was the direction I chose because these things were being ignored. And to me, they, you know, from, as I was reading about what was going on in Europe in the early 70s and New York in the early 70s, and even a little before then, there was something quite magical about the, the ephemeral quality of, of these happenings, that if someone hadn't been there with a camera, yeah. there wouldn't be there wouldn't a, any, any record of it. So the, Including things like Klaus Holmberg's storefront to some extent. Ex exactly. Or, you know, all the Fluxus performances. Exactly, exactly. That was the, the birth of, of my collecting photography, and subsequently I was seeing film and video of um, some performances that were taking place in particular in Europe. And again, no one was looking at this. So the first performance video piece that I bought was by a German artist named Annegret Soltau. And she would do these performances where she took string or thread and someone would literally wrap her. It would take hours and hours and wrap her and, and confine her which had to do with the confinement of the wife, of the, the female part of a, a relationship. With that, she also did a series of photo montages that then she would embroider with the thread. But I saw one of the videos of one of these performances and I just went, oh my God, this is extraordinary. So I bought that piece and, and, and I also bought some of the photos that were in conjunction documenting these events. So I want to actually ask you very specifically, because it's amazing that you would be doing that at that moment. What date was that? I'm going to say maybe 81. 1981. 1981, yes. Are you sure? You don't look that old. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've been around the block a few times. And and I don't know anybody who is buying performance video in 1981. And that's something I'm associated with. Even institutions, yeah. it was very rare. Yeah. What on earth was going through your head when you said, I need to own this ephemeral video of a performance, which is an ephemeral act, and 
you paid for it. Well, I, hopefully you paid for yeah, it. Yeah, I did. And, <laughs> and by the way, I have goosebumps just having this conversation with you because I still have that kind of reaction right. when I think about the beginnings of all this. It just felt to me like this was a moment in history that I wanted to, to be able to, to have and collect and follow through. And I'm a, I'm a monstrous reader. I don't sleep very much, so you know, at one or two in the morning, I'm 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 still reading, and I and we should phone each other. Yeah, I we should. Too. Yeah, <laughs> I'll text you. <laughs> and so, you know, whatever whatever I could find, um, even in German, when I would slowly translate, you know, because there were a lot of things going on yeah, in Germany sure. and and in Eastern Europe at the time. Whatever I could find about, and there wasn't that much out there, but I would I would do my homework and then seek it out. And were you finding and seeing that material predominantly in Europe? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you were traveling mm -hmm. for work or this was it? Combination. You know, whenever I would go to Europe to source things for the projects that I was working on, I would take little side trips. And, um, you know, little by little, I would be introduced to either curators or galleries that had some of this material. I mean, including things that were, were actually in the artist studios. And they didn't understand the desire or the passion on my part to want to preserve these things because no one was paying attention to it. Sure. It's not like that anymore, by the way. Do you it's, remember what you paid for the piece? Oh, goodness. Maybe $500. Well, in 1981, that was real money. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't nothing, especially for a work which effectively was ephemeral. Yes. I mean, you weren't getting a painting in a frame or yeah. a drawing in a frame. You were buying a, a video yeah, of a performance. Exactly. Or, you know, photographs that, that were in, sitting in portfolios or in a drawer. And I would go through and, and pick some of them. And then the artist would sign them because they didn't think anybody was interested. Well, there was no sense that these things at that point had any value at all exactly. or would have any or value. Or would, right. And that was never my intention, you know, sure. to think that way. The value that I saw was in, in the history that, that could easily be lost if either institutions or, or private collectors didn't do anything about this. And have you consistently collected video since that time? Yes, yes. Like all kids, you know, I loved the movies when I was um, a little boy. And... You know, I spent a lot of time sort of analyzing what brought me there. And I, I think I, I have the answer, which was when I was 10 years old and I just landed in the U.S., I went to see... From? From Spain at this point. The trajectory was, you know, Cuba to Spain, Spain to, to the U.S., to Boston in particular. Quite common at that time. It was. You know, there was this whole diaspora movement happening, shift. Yeah. Um, a shift. We left Cuba um, shortly after the revolution and went from one dictator to another because uh, Franco was in power at the time. And then eventually... Batista to Franco. Exactly. Well, Fidel to, oh, to Franco, yes. yeah. And Batista wasn't much better either, so yeah. before that... Sorry, Freudian slip. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so I was 10 years old. I still remember to this day, and I went to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. What a kid my age was doing seeing this film, I don't know, but... Where were your parents is the question. Um, <laughs> they weren't with me. They so. allowed you out. 
<laughs> I, I don't think it was R-rated. I think, you know, I could go in and see it. But nevertheless, I'm seeing this extraordinarily strange film because there's no rhyme or reason, or you don't think there is. I mean, clearly there was in, in, in Kubrick's mind. Um, and I was enthralled. And I think I've probably seen that film 20 times, if not more. And when I saw that film, it stayed with me. And the same sensation that I felt then, I felt when I first started seeing video work. Mm. And so I attribute my obsession to Mr. Kubrick. He has a lot to answer for. Yes, he does. <laughs> but interestingly, of course, Stanley Kubrick, apart from being a great filmmaker, was originally a great photographer. That's right. And, you know, it's becoming more apparent as things go on how important his photography archive was and also how important his use of the moving image married to sound was. Exactly. And that was one of the most exciting and profound aspects of 2001. I remember having very similar experience to yours, sort of not, not knowing what the hell I was watching, really, but knowing that it was important. Yes. And yes. I hadn't seen anything like it before. And th this person was moving me in a direction which was unique. You know, at 10, I didn't know that, but clearly as time passed, um, and I would refer back to that film and, and his other films, and my obsession with cinema just kept going. Yes, it was transformative. Was there a sense of, I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are, you know, if, if you like, not art film buffs, but more regular film buffs. And they talk very eloquently about the experience of, you know, which is very different to now, being in the big cinema in the dark yeah. with a lot of other people watching the big screen as being a, a kind of incredibly emotional and powerful place to be. That's a very different experience to the experience most of us have now when we're called upon to see a video. Exactly. How does that work for you? That's a very good question. And, and as I think about what the answer is, is that when I see a video on a computer screen, I can actually visualize this as something of great monumentality. Mind you, not all video works are meant to be shown, you know, projected onto a large wall. But the ones that are, when I see them on a small screen, it, you can do that. I can do that. And again, a lot of that I attribute to you know, back in 68, you still had the great movie houses, right? Yeah, you know, sure. and, and not like today where you go and it's, you know, the screen is not that much bigger than, than what stamp. some people have in their homes. Yeah. So. And Manuel, how does that sit with you? I know that you are somebody who spends a lot of time looking, very diligent, and you spend a lot of time with a time-based medium. This is a time-based medium. Yes. How does that work? Can you unpack this for us? How does that work at a moment when our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter? You know, it was 140 characters, now it's 280. God help us, because the president's using all of them. Yes, um, and, sadly. But it's a very short attention span. You know, you go to bars or you go to Unlimited and there might be in a room where there's 60 major objects being shown in Unlimited, 30 black box, temporary black box theaters. People are popping in, popping out. Their attention spans are very, very short. What do you think that's doing to video now? It's, I actually find it very disturbing because time is, uh, is a luxury for, for a lot of people. 
And by not giving time to this work or these, these, these works, you're missing out on the language and the vision of, of the artists who have created these things. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, Shireen Nishat, I mean, some of her videos, which they're epic. You, you know, you can walk in and watch it for a minute and I'm sorry, you're missing out on, on something that references you know, the history of film in the Middle East and, yeah. and um, the traditions and the, the, the beauty of the composition of, these, of, 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 of work by her. Or, and I mean, she's just one example. There are sure. so many more. And I just love to sit and watch and analyze and look at the work and, and, and try to understand you know, the nuances and, and the f just the visual beauty. But you clearly have a predisposition to doing that. If you were advising somebody who is going to bump up against video work for the first time, who may be a product of this much more truncated moment, what advice would you give them about how to approach it? Um, is there a threshold you have to get through? Do you have to kind of force through a sort of boredom threshold? Do you have to immerse? How would you advise somebody to, to, to get through that barrier? It's depending on, on, I mean, if it's a, a, a new collector, I would say... Well, a new viewer. Right, or a new viewer. Uh, you know, focus on works that, that maybe require three or four minutes of your time. And there are actually some very beautiful, sure. repetitive pieces, which to me have a Zen-like quality. Um, that it's just, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, it loops and it, when it loops correctly, um, there's, the flow is really quite lovely and, you know, it gives you an opportunity to just stand there for a couple of minutes and look at it and go about your merry way and then come back again and, and experience it some more. And, it, you know, in, in my space, um, it becomes, some of these works become background. Um, that actually, for me, it sort of helps to calm me down. Um, you know, most of them are silent, or if they have sound, you know, it's it's um, it's easy on the ears. It's not um, anything that has dialogue. It's mostly I, it's mostly music or or um, you know the sound of nature or you know and it's something that that doesn't require you to fully focus on it. Um, Do you primarily respond to works that you find very emotionally intense? Because absolutely. 2001 was a very emotionally yeah. intense film. Well, and I think hence, you know, my, my curiosity and love of performance. I mean, a lot of performance work is really intense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I tend to like perhaps even things that are a little bit darker than, than, than the average collector. Um, would. Has that always been the case, or have you found that you, your as as your interests deepened, it's become that way? Yes, yeah. It it didn't start that way. Yeah. Um, but um, other than you know, Anna Gretz piece was very. Um, so is that maturity or experience, or I think it's a combination. Um, you know, I I I have this instinctual rule that if the work makes me uncomfortable, it's probably really good. <laughs> And if I walk away from it and I can't stop thinking about it, 
then I need to bring that into my collection. You know, that's such an interesting point because I've heard so many collectors speak about that. And I think, just speaking personally, it's such a difficult thing to, to accommodate. I mean... Um, it takes courage. I, 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 you know, I think you could easily argue that there's so much going on in our world today that to be discomforted by an artwork mm. in that way and decide that it's profound and you need to give it more time and you need to pay more attention is quite courageous. Uh, you're probably right. I, I, I don't look at it that way. For me, it's, it's, um, it, it ties into, again, that running thread, that dialogue. And being that Anna Gretz is the first piece, which, you know, th th there's something very um, claustrophobic about s seeing her being wrapped in this black thread, and it's endless and endless. Um, that the, 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 the pieces that followed, and not all of them, but a lot of them had to do with endurance um, in, in some of these performative actions. And what do you think about the issues that confront us institutionally about showing video and enjoying video? Because I know that you've said, why would anybody stay in the space to watch a video if, if the people showing it to them haven't even accommodated them by putting, you know, couches or chairs in, which is a very good point. But recently, Christian Marclay's great clock piece was shown in London at the Tate, and there were people queuing 24 hours a day to get in to see that. And that is <clears throat> extraordinary. And it, yeah. I, I love that piece. Um, I, I, my duration was five hours and 17 minutes. Um. Because I, that was the other question I was gonna ask you. I, I wanna come back to the question about the challenges yes. facing institutions mm -hmm. about showing work, but that was the other question I was gonna ask you. Because there is a very interesting parallel uh, I was going to say, were you a durational film viewer? Because in the 60s, 70s, you know, Andy Warhol was making Empire, 24-hour right. pan of the Empire State Building. P possibly the most boring piece of film ever made, but very beautiful and special in its own way. Right. And then you have Christian Marclay, you know, uh, you know, the other end of the spectrum with his 24-hour piece, um, which is very recent, getting a very contemporary audience. And also, yes, absolutely. And there's there's a there's a connection in that in that work that most people who see it recognize those moments from different films because you know yeah. we've all watched you know the uh, Turner classic movies endlessly, and we've you know we've, we can recognize the watch from uh, Hitchcock movie exactly. And, and I think and I, that. That connection is important. You know, it's some that it's something familiar, something that that has touched you at some point. I mean, I found myself doing it throughout that film. You know, going, oh, you know, that's from from this movie, and that's from that movie. Um, ironically, you bring Markley up um, shortly after I bought Anna Gret's work. Um, I bought telephones. Ah. And I did not look at your, I'm not cribbing your notes. No, <laughs> I, I actually didn't put that there, but since you brought it up that, um, and I, it's the same, it's the same reaction to, to, to that. And to me, that was like quite brilliant that he created a dialogue of, you know, hello and goodbye, um, using bits of, of iconic Hollywood films. Sure. And I thought that was quite brilliant and very clever. Um, 
and it's withstood the test of time. And which for somebody from that generation was, you know, from his generation, my generation, your generation, it's like making a mixtape. Exactly. It's like making a cassette, you know, for exactly. a friend, you know, in a way, but a visual one. Right. So if I told you what I paid for that, you would. No, no, <laughs> don't upset me. <laughs> that was another, another um, sort of golden nugget that I, right. that it just felt right. And I had, no one knew that he would, his career would go the way it has. Sure. And, um, it's, it's one of my babies. So to go back to the starting point of this section mm -hmm. of the conversation, what, what's happening that's wrong institutionally about how these things are being shown to us that might be turning us off or not engaging us in, in, in a more um, profound way? At a time when institutions, if you go to major museums, you know, many viewers will be wandering zombie-like from masterwork to masterwork, spending three seconds in front of each, a click of the camera and they're off to the next one. And here we are saying, you know, there's this great time-based video work that you should really spend 15 minutes seeing. How do we slow the person down long enough to, to achieve that? Well, you know, a lot of museums haven't really given um, room to to deal with these works, right? They're, you know, they have a black box, which is the size of a closet. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but typically, you know, that, that was never a part of their program. And that clearly that's changed because certainly MoMA and, and other institutions in New York and the Tate Modern in London um, ha are making room for these things, but you didn't, you know, you would, go there and there would, if you were lucky, there would be a hard bench. And that's still today, by the way, where you, it's, it's uncomfortable. You don't, or you sit on the floor because there's only two benches in, in a, in a big room. And, um, I think people lose the, the desire to be part of it. Um, the, the, uh, the other thing that I see is that, you know, there's, there's, um, a lack of narrative to some of the works that you see um, in some of the institutions. Um, but when it's, when it's strong, um, people stay. People stand there or they sit on the floor and they watch the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Christian Markle example is a perfect mm -hmm. example. Nobody has any problem sitting in there for hours watching it. No. There's a reason it's a really fabulous piece. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's how you engage the audience today, which is so varied. I mean, the, you know, you have little kids and teenagers, you know, taking selfies in front of, you know, Jericho's, the, the, the raft of the Medusa, um, and not really looking at, at the paintings. So it's, 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 it's tough. It's not an easy, um, it's not an easy time. So one of the interesting things that you said in an interview once, um, again, that links into this, because I know you do spend a lot of time thinking about these things, especially in, in the context of video and time-based work, was you said, I spend a lot of time in museums observing how people look at video. That to me was such an interesting observation. Um, when perhaps we're all flitting in and out of the frame of the piece, and moving very quickly through the institution, you're actually saying that you're observing the patterns of how people are viewing the work. Yes. What, 
what, where does, what's, what, what are you doing that for? Well, um, as you know, um, because we've known each other a long time, I tend to give away um, a lot of things in my collection. And um, I decided that it was important for me to understand the psyche of the observer in, in an institution. And it's different in every city and every country, by the way. Um, and so my curiosity was, okay, I, I want to I give things that, number one, the, the make sense for the institution for their, their collecting program, but that also might engage um, the audience a little bit more than it typically does, which, you know, if, if they're in there for a minute, that's a long time. So, you know, seeing what, what drew their attention made me think of, um, uh, as to, okay, this is a work that I think, you know, I've had it, I've enjoyed it, it needs now to go to an institution so that more people can see it. Because quite frankly, Sean, I mean, some of the things that I buy are, they're challenging physically too, you know. I, I can't have a multi-screen work in my, in my loft because then I have no, no other room. Um, but when I see something compelling of, of that magnitude. That's not the first criteria. No. No, it's, I know that when I buy, you know, a, a three or five screen or more so than that, um, ultimately that's, that's initially for loans so that I can actually see them. And then I give them, I give them away. How would you counter the, the, the issue that often arises of people saying, I own, I own these videos and I never get to see them. Uh, they're sort of, I know I have them, they're there, but I'm not able to live with them in the same way that I could with an artwork or a, a you know, a painting or a drawing or a sculpture. You know, I, I give them my example of how I live with some of these things. And it's, you know, it's either um, a rotation of monitors um, that I bring in from, you know, from the storage unit, or, um, you know, I have multi-screens, you know, flat screen TVs, which everybody has in their home, you know. Sure. And, and some of the works are actually meant to be seen even on a tablet. So um, I, I don't think it's that complicated to integrate it into, into your everyday life. In fact, to be able to walk in your front door and right there, there's, there's a beautiful moving image that says, welcome home. Um, well, you could argue that in many ways, we're living in a culture now where we are more used to having moving images in our lives than we are to having static pictures. Absolutely. We just haven't gotten used to how we are using them in our life. Exactly. Because we are all surrounded. I mean, you could have your artwork on the fridge now or on the, you know, in a few years time, no doubt on your vacuum cleaner. <laughs> As it, as it is going around the house yes. automatically. Right. Because screens are on everything. Information is everywhere it's now. It's everywhere. And this is information, effectively. So I, I think you could argue that we're just not thinking about how these things can be in our lives in a particularly innovative way. Exactly. But, you know, more and more so the, the, the people in my world that, you know, that I create interiors for, um, I encourage them and they're starting to, to, um, to, 
to identify sp spaces in their homes where, okay, this is where we're gonna do three flat screens because of this one work that, that they bought. And then if you know we rotate, we can take two screens away and have one. And yeah, we should say that in your day job, most <laughs> all the other things yes. that we talked about, you are both a very uh, venerated interior designer and work with clients and you advise them about work as well. How difficult has that, has it been to get people to consider integrating moving images into their, into the, into their home environment? Actually not, it hasn't been that, it hasn't been that difficult, especially if they come over and they see how I live with it. Um, then it's like the aha moment. Oh, well we can do that. you know, and, um, it's, I, I, just, I would say that every, every client of mine who is also a collector um, has at least one or two, two works. And, and if you break it down for them and you say, look, I mean, there's, perhaps they're thinking about it as being art right. in parentheses. If you break it down for them and say, look, it's a television in your house. You already have a television in your house. You just, instead of watching CNN or Fox, you right. put an artwork on exactly. it. Do they kind of go, oh. Yes. Yes, they do. Right, they do, and 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 they and they're doing it, and, and they're enjoying it and, and staying absolutely. You know, when they have parties and they entertain, practically every flat screen is on with with a, a different yeah. work, and um, you know, and people people engage. Fantastic. So, at the time when video was first emerging, Bill Viola, Gary Hill, their work was emerging and many others, the work was emerging because of cameras which w could be moved, even though they were the size of small suitcases exactly. at that point. <laughs> now we all have a, 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 a camera, a video camera in our pocket. We can all be videographers. We can all make photographs. We can, and it's a, it's a from, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum for a photographer and, a, and somebody who's working with video. Have you, have you moved into collecting um, art made on the internet? Yes. I, uh -huh. um, not, not that much, but there are probably four or five works in, in my collection that are internet-based um, pieces. Um, ironically, they don't get as much attention from me as, as some of the other things. And do you think that's a generational thing? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And do you think that in the future, we're gonna be very comfortable with that medium in the way that we were not with video 30, 40 years ago? Without a doubt. Really? Without a doubt. In fact, um, <clears throat> some of my younger acquaintances um, are already doing that. Like they, they, you know, when they travel, and if we meet up somewhere, it's like, oh, let me show you what's on my tablet that you know I just bought um, by so and so. And but how is that going to work in terms of, of of value? How is that if everything is available all the time, and you didn't have to pay for it, or if you did pay for it, it's still available? How does value play into that? to that as a collector? You know, it's, it's not that different when, um, when artists like Dan Flavin were, were doing their fluorescent pieces, right? And the most important thing 
of, of, a, of a Flavin uh, installation is the document. It's that document that he signed that said, you know, this is how this needs to be hung. This is what, you know, right. what, what size uh, tube it needs to be, so on and so forth. And ultimately, that in, in collecting video, it's that document that says, you know, you have just bought, you know, edition number three of five, and it's signed by the artist, and it's signed by the gallery, and it gives you the instructions on how this artist wants this work shown. So, so. you think that just as with Judd and Flavin, Kasuth Baldassari, that first generation of conceptual artists and, and uh, minimalist artists, that certification is, is the way that these things will be resolved. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, by the way, I don't have a problem with any of the works that I have being disseminated on, you know, YouTube or whatever. Yeah. It's, that's, it's, I'm delighted because that means that there are people who are looking at this and um, are developing an interest and, and are looking at it as de a definitive art form. Um, but I still hold the paper. Yeah. So. If you were going to give a collector starting out now who's particularly interested in, and I would assume, given the culture we're living in now with the internet, with Google, with you know, information technology, and, and who knows where that will all be. I mean, there's already a company in Sweden that's, that's putting chips inside people. That's right, um, and they're lining up for you know, them. And everybody's lining mm -hmm. up for it. If you were giving collectors ad advice now who are starting out and want to be on the cutting edge, as you were and are, of collecting a medium which was not conventionally regarded as collectible, what would be your advice to them? My advice is start slow, do your homework, because there's a lot of homework you have to do. Um, you know, when, when, when someone starts collecting initially, they're not as discriminate, right? They buy a little bit of this, they buy a little bit of that. Um, and some of the mistakes that, that we made along the way, we, I call that tuition. Um, <laughs> um, and I don't know one collector who hasn't, right, made um, a blunder of some sort. I will tell a new collector, a young collector, think about what makes your heart sing, right, when you watch something on, on a screen. And let's make a list. Let's make a list of, you know, what you respond to. And then let's see which artists are doing work that has a reference to, to those things that give you goosebumps and take your breath away. And you begin there. If I asked you to talk about connoisseurship in terms of your world, your language, your collecting practice, will we be using the same language we use if we were talking about painting or sculpture or works of Very paper? similar. Or, or is it different? No, it's very similar. It's very similar. You know, in, as, as you said earlier, I'm a big champion of emerging artists because I think they need, um, you know, they need heroes along the way, people who have influence to help move their, their careers along because, you know, I want them to be able to make a living and, and be able to do work, right? Not, not be distracted by the fact that they have to find a way to pay rent and put food on their table. I, don't, I forget where I, where I was going with this, but nevertheless... We were so, talking about whether connoisseurship in terms of the kind of formal language of what you're yes. interested in, the descriptive terms or the criteria would be very different. So they're very similar. They're very similar because if you look at the, the history of, 
of this medium, it's actually not that old, right? So, sure. so we don't have to study 1,200, 1,500 years of art history in order to understand what, what was going on. You know, I, I, I like peppering my collection with, with little treasures along the way when I can of the, the early um, artists working in the medium because it's, again, it's that, it's that thread, it's that dialogue that I like, you know, you know, this artist has influenced this younger artist and this one and that one and that one. And do you feel that that's a growing area of activity? Because, I mean, one could have argued, well, video is, is finite. It's going to, you know, it's 30 years and then we move on to the next thing. But what seems to be happening is that it actually was just the beginning of, of this sort of, inter, you know, it's pre-internet, internet age exactly. in a certain way. Exactly. So do you see a very sort of bright, shiny future? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the virtual reality um, component of this is, is nascent, right? It's come into play. Um, is I, that interesting or awful or terrifying? No, I, th I think it can be interesting, um, you know, as long as you don't feel like you're, you're playing, you know, a video, a video game. game yeah. um, but if, if it's a piece that's immersive, that takes you to a whole other place um, where you don't feel you have to shoot, you know, the, the, the bad guy. I mean, that's just my taste. Sure. But, um, you know, there, 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 there's always something that will evolve, that will, will take this to the next place. And also, I mean, like in, in painting or in sculpture or conceptual work, you, you, if you do your homework, you can actually, I, I, or at least I can see, you can you know, follow the thread. I follow the thread and yeah. also I can look at a, at a work and say, you know what, this is derivative. Yeah. And there's, yeah. as you know, and I know there's a lot of derivative sure. work out, out there. And in so, all media. In all media. So, uh, finding uh, how you define how you define these things and um, and add them to the collection, uh, knowing that you know there's an original voice here. Um, that's what I look for. Same skill set. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time talking about film, video, time-based work, and younger artists who I know you're very particularly uh, supportive of. Yes. Um, do you own any drawings or paintings? I do. Um, <laughs> Why haven't you told me this? <laughs> I do. Um, you know, a lot. It, it, ironically, some of the artists who, who you know, who do video work um, also do works on paper. So there's one example: uh, this young Brazilian artist named Carla Heim. Um, she does the most exquisite drawings that actually refer to her actions, to her performances. And Glenda Leon. Uh, Glenda Leon, play, uh, another great example. example. I mean, they're, 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 you know, this is not um, a rarity in, yeah. in the field. And so if I can collect the, the evidence of, of that action or, um, or even, you know, the documentation with the little sketches that have been done along the way. You know, um, I mean, uh, Bill Viola does that. Um, well, Robert I, Wilson, you know, they, they, they sketch these things out, you yeah, know, to, I mean, to think about what it's going to look like on the, the screen. The great Bruce Nauman retrospective just opened at MoMA PS1. Same, and same I thing. Was, I was there on the weekend and a struck, I mean, an artist I love. Right. And struck again, uh, 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 you know, forcefully 
by how much Bruce was drawing. Exactly. How much he was drawing and planning and plotting out and you, sequencing. That's where you see them thinking. You see them thinking exactly. through the drawings. So, so yeah, so I do have, I have, um, I have a number of, of um, works on paper and, you know, that, that reference. Um, aside from that, of course, I, I do, I do collect so, other things. So now we have a better, a better picture of you, not mm -hmm. just living in this moving, in this constantly moving landscape of moving images. No. There are fixed points in your in your environment as well, and I think that you can visit. And I yes, exactly. <clears throat> and I think they they actually support each other quite beautifully. Yeah. So, final question: um, If you could pick any artwork in the history of art, doesn't have to be something that you could own. It could be in any institution anywhere in the world. It could be something you do own. Um, but something that would be really powerful and meaningful for you. Um, impossible question, of course, but what, what single artwork would you choose? Wow, that's, that's a big question. But, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to reference a, a work that I, that I mentioned earlier, and it is the, the Raft of the Medusa by Jericot. Um, that has a timeless message. And when you think about what's going on today in the world with migration, I look at a 19th century masterpiece that feels contemporary to me because it's, we're witnessing it on television. We're seeing, you know, the rafts that are coming over. Um, to Europe, and we're also seeing the bodies that are washing up on the shore. And so that, to me, that work, it says it all. It transcends time, it's not linear. You can attach a lot of meaning and feeling to that work before it was made and after. And what a fantastic choice, because a work that was based on a real event, but was in many ways idealized exactly. for the French public, presented as a very large scale painting in the Louvre and had at the time the equivalent impact on that audience as a great piece of cinematography had. People queued up to see it, to stand in front of it, to understand the tragedy of that moment being depicted by a painter who was making something on a scale that approached a filmic scale. Frozen time. Frozen time. Manuel, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being on Collect Wisely. It's, it's such been, a treat to be here with so you. It's so illuminating and- For uh, me also. <laughs> re really fantastic conversation. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it tremendously. And thank as you, as, thank as, you so as, much, as John. Me, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at SeanKellyNY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers. Cheers.